Welcome to the Unqualified Scholar Podcast. So we've been doing this series at church called At the Movies, and I literally, so I just I just started here at Shoreline, and um, I sat down to sort of come up with a sermon calendar, and I thought we'll do a series in the Psalms and just pick some Psalms um, almost at random, and then sat down and decided to do an At the Movies series. So the basic idea behind At the Movies is you pick a movie, find some themes, find the themes in, in Scripture, and then you're able to talk about those themes uh, during a sermon. So we don't preach the movie, we preach the Bible, but there are always themes in the world around us that we can pick up on and we can, uh, you know, become more educated, become better Christians when we analyze and think about the world around us. And we can do this with our kids. You know, when you see something out in the world, um, you can say, hey, look, look at this thing in the world. There's also something in the Bible that talks about that. Well, you can even talk about living wisely in the world around us. That's the book of Proverbs. You can talk about emotions uh, through the book of Psalms. There, there is a psalm for just about every emotion that you can imagine. There are psalms that are really, they come across very angry, uh, very frustrated because we live in a broken world. And psalms become a language by which we can talk to God and just say, hey, Lord, I'm frustrated, I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm depressed. All those things are emotions that we can see and feel in the Psalter. There's also parts of the New Testament that deal with our emotions and our emotional well-being. You know, how do we control our desires? How do we move through life in a way that honors God and honors the people around us? Sometimes it's very difficult. And so I, I literally sat down for this at the movie series and I picked movies that, that I liked um, or movies that I thought people would like. And so the first movie we watched was Shrek. Now, Shrek is a movie about friendship. And so we looked at scripture and we found a passage in John that dealt with friendship. And we dealt, we talked about the idea of friendship in an ancient context. And so we're going to expand on that today. Um, but what I find interesting is the way that God kind of orchestrates things behind the scenes. I picked random movies. The first one talks about friendship, and that is an important idea for a Christian to engage with other Christians and to engage with the world around them. The second movie that I picked was a movie called Family Camp. And the text that I chose was also out of, uh, out of the letters of John, 1 John, where it talks about how... Christians are more than just casual relationships. That our relationship with our brothers and sisters in the church and in Christ is a much deeper and robust relationship. And then the next movie on the docket is Inside Out, literally a movie about emotions. And so I, I don't know that I could have orchestrated this, or if I had tried to orchestrate it, I probably would have messed it up. But when you look back and you see, oh, wow, um, friendship is an important idea, and we have to discuss that. We have to think about the vertical dimension of friendship. How are we the friends of Jesus? And if you're the friends of Jesus, how does that impact and influence the way that you interact with other friends of Jesus? Have you ever had two friends, two good friends who were at odds with each other? What was your role? What were your responsibilities? How did you enter into that relationship? You might think, well, that's none of my business. But if they're your true friends, 
maybe you jumped in. Maybe you jumped into the middle of a fight and said, hey, you guys knock it off. Because that's what friends do. When you think about the idea of family, how close are you? And, and this is where, like, we, we live in a broken world, and so I get it. You know, that we have families that are broken. We have relationship situations that have gone sideways for whatever reason, sometimes for, for all, what feels like no reason at all. We live in a broken world. And yet, what is the ideal of family? And when, uh, when John talks about family, what does he mean? And then how does it translate into the world that we live in? So let's start with the idea of friendship and work from there. It turns out that the ancient world was full of philosophers, people who like to sit around and talk about things and ideas. And some of them were ideas that were really worth exploring. When you think about friendship, that's one of the ideas that the philosophers, they wanted to really understand what is the essence of friendship? What is that? What makes it such a blessing to our lives, such a good thing to have. It's a good thing to have friends. But what is a friend? The uh, philosopher Aristotle came up with uh, a threefold uh, description of what a friend is like. And this has actually been helpful for me as I've thought about some relationships with, with people in my life. Not everybody on Facebook helps you move, right? Because they might be friends, quote unquote, but that's a pretty casual relationship. There are people who I have as Facebook friends that I've actually never met in real life. That's kind of weird for me. So Aristotle described friendship in three ways. Friends are people who are uh, pleasant company. So people who enjoy hanging around and just uh, like their investment in each other is pretty small. They're not really not really there for the long haul. You don't call your, your good time friends when you're in jail. All right. So you, friendship is based on pleasant company. So that's one kind of friendship. And you could probably think of a friend that you, you like that way. You know, you, you like to spend time with them. It's fun to just connect with them and hang out a little bit. But you, you know, you play golf together or you go fishing together. And, you know, you might have a, a, a little bit of a deeper relationship. But the, the foundation of your relationship is really that you are just pleasant company. I have some relationships like that. That's okay. There are other relationships, and these are uh, broader Okay, so you, you might, let's hope you enjoy their company, but they're really relationships based on utility. That someone is useful to you uh, in the sense of helping you in, move your career forward. I have some friends on LinkedIn that they are helping me move my career forward. They're not really, you know, I, I still can't call them to help me move. We don't really hang out and spend time together. We don't, you know, golf or, you know, build Legos, which is my thing. Uh, we don't build Legos together. Uh, we don't play golf together. We merely are there to help each other in their career. And I've actually given some recommendations. I know some people who are fantastic salespeople. Well, I can, with credibility, say, okay, this person who I know only slightly or only in a single dimension, I could say this person is a great salesperson because of experience that maybe they sold me um, ice water on a cold day. You're like, wow, that's a good salesman. So uh, pleasant company, utility, but Aristotle said that the highest form of friendship is based on virtue. Now, virtue is an idea that you are, you're friends with someone for the give and take 
of goodness. You want to encourage the goodness in another person. And you want that person to encourage the goodness in you. Now, this kind of friendship is rare, okay? Uh, this is the kind of person who can step into your life at any moment. Maybe they've been absent for a long time. They can step into your life and they can say, hey, you're messing up. And you can know that that person loves you, cares for you, wants good things for you, and you can accept their advice freely. Those are good friends. Those are the kind of people you should hang on to. Now, probably the people that you are virtue friends with, like they don't parachute into your life and drop some wisdom on you or some life advice. You probably spend time with them. They probably help you in your career. Uh, you might enjoy playing checkers with them or Legos or whatever. You know. So the best form of friendship is when you see all three aspects in a relationship with someone else. Let's hope you see that in your marriage relationship. Friendship. Ancient philosophers, pleasant company, uh, pleasant company, um, utility, and virtue. We should all seek to have friends who can speak into our lives goodness and health and wholeness. And so I hope you have that kind of relationship in your life. For the series at Shoreline, what we did is we looked at the, the movie Shrek, and Shrek and Donkey are friends. And I don't want to focus so much on the movie. I mean, it's 20 years old, so go watch the movie, right? But when John wrote the gospel, when John sat down to write the gospel of John, he was sitting down at the end of his life. John was a young man in the 30s when Jesus was crucified and resurrected. John was there uh, for that. John saw the birth of the church. John saw the growth of the church. Uh, he spent 60 years investing, uh, yeah, 60 years or thereabouts, investing in the Christian mission in the world. He was the elder statesman uh, of Christianity, someone who had seen Christ and, and knew him uh, late into the, the 90s. Probably before 100, he died. I think 90, 95, if memory serves. I could be wrong there. I'm allowed to be wrong because I'm the unqualified scholar. But John wrote in the 90s, and John wrote as a theological reflection on the life of Jesus Christ. And this is what makes John different from the other Gospels. The other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they sort of, uh, they're on the same page with the history of Jesus and the events in Jesus' life. John takes a different, a different direction with it because John is trying to convince you to believe in Jesus. Once you like get into the Gospel of John and start reading and thinking about John, it really is a very pointed book. John wants you to believe in Jesus. And he's written everything that he's chosen and selected and arranged is really to provoke you to believe in Jesus. Whether you're a Jewish person back in the first century, whether you're a Gentile, even today when you pick up the book of John and read, it is to provoke you into believing in Jesus. And one of the key events that most of the time we don't really think about or realize, John wrote in the 90s, in the 70s, uh, well, okay, back up to the 60s, not the 1960s, the 0060s, the Jewish people started a war with Rome because they wanted to regain their independence. The Jewish people chafed under the Roman Empire. The Romans would, uh, there was a big group of soldiers, Roman soldiers, Gentiles parked right outside the temple. So as the Jewish people were worshiping the one true God, there were a bunch of Gentiles parked right there to make sure that they didn't get uppity and didn't get into rebellion. 
they would hold on to, the Roman army would hold on to the high priest's garments that he needed to make atonement for the people once a year. So the Jewish people were like, we're not really pro-Rome for the most part. There were some Jewish people who were, hey, Rome's not that bad. Good roads. You know, we get common language with Greek. So, you know, there were some people who were like, Rome is okay. Some people even advocated for Rome. Really, there's any number of different responses, but most people chafed under the Roman Empire. And so there was a rebellion in the 60s, and Rome had a very low view of rebellion. The reason that they created all these great roads is that so they could move armies quickly from one place to another. The Roman, uh, Roman uh, government sent in the legions to crush the rebellion, and they were very effective at doing that. If you look at, or if you Google Masada, M-A-S-A-D-A, that's where the Jewish rebels had their last stand. Um, very interesting story in and of itself. <clears throat> so in A.D. 70, Rome is sort of in the process of crushing the rebellion. And what they did is they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. Now that's happened before in the history of the Jewish people. You have the Babylonian invasion where the Babylonians come in and they destroyed the first temple created by Solomon. What was destroyed by the Romans in 70 was the second temple. And it was a watershed moment for the Jewish people when the Babylonian army came in and destroyed the temple. Because they interpreted, many of them interpreted that as punishment. Punishment for idolatry, for not serving the one true God in the way that they should. And so there would be some in AD 70 and thereafter who interpreted the, the destruction of the Roman, the destruction of the temple by the Roman army to be an act of judgment from God. And so John is writing in the 90s, about 20 years after that, and he's writing in the Gospel of John, ideas intended to provoke people to ask and answer this question, what now? What do we do? How do we worship God? How do we have this forgiveness of sins with no temple? Once you start reading John from that perspective, it'll change. It'll open up for you. The Roman army destroyed the temple. And you can see this in the gospel as John says things. This is an example from John chapter 4, verse 23, where John has met with the Samaritan woman. Now, because we're on a podcast, I can take more time with this, right? You're okay if I take a little more time. It doesn't matter. You're a recording. Pause it. Come back later. What do you, what do you care? So the Samaritan woman is actually a fascinating story in and of itself, especially as it works with the story about Nicodemus and especially how it works with John chapter 1. So in John chapter 1, John says, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. Pretty straightforward so far, right? Um, we, all, we all sort of read John chapter 1 and we start thinking about Jesus right off the bat because that's, that's how we're bent. But in John 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word God, was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Um, there's so much in there even to talk about, but in him was life, and life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is a key theme for the Gospel of John, light and darkness. 
And John is writing a piece of literature. Like, he doesn't always come back and say, oh, by the way, we're doing the light-dark theme again. It's just there. And you, the reader, you have to pick up on light and darkness as it goes through the Gospel of John. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Night is symbolic of unbelief, unfaith, rejection of Jesus. And what you find in John 3 is that as Nicodemus comes to Jesus, Jesus says things to him like, why don't you get this? You're the teacher of all Israel, and I'm, I'm struggling to, to explain this to you. Why, why is this hard for you? <laughs> and Nicodemus leaves. He just kind of like drifts off the scene, and that's it. Jesus gives him a little lecture there at the end, including John 3.16. Um, how can these things be in John 3, 9, what, what Nicodemus says? Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand? And Nicodemus is really, like, he does not come off well in this little piece of Scripture in John 3. Nicodemus doesn't get it. And he's one of the guys who's supposed to get it. So when you look at Nicodemus, and we're going to get to the Samaritan woman here in a minute. When you look at Nicodemus in this idea, the temple has been destroyed and you're looking for a way to worship God. Are you going to walk in the light or are you going to remain in the darkness? Or are you going to be like Nicodemus? Somebody who's supposed to get it and doesn't. Man, I find that a lot of times we as Christians, we do that. We become Nicodemus where we have gotten so narrowly focused on something that we forget all of the other things that we're supposed to be about. Um, <clears throat> and there are any number of moral things that we could talk about. Okay, smoking. Take smoking, for example. Now, I don't smoke. <clears throat> um, good tobacco is wasted on me. I have some friends who smoke. Not a big deal. It's not, not really a moral thing, in my opinion. Okay? So, you see somebody smoking. You're a Christian. What do you do? As my good friend Corey would say, you say, you walk up to him and you say, hi. You don't have to do what they do to be friendly. You can just say, hello, how are you? What's going on? When I worked at a, a small uh, factory for a summer job one time, I would take smoke breaks. I didn't smoke. I just hung out with the guys. You know why? Because I'm a Christian. I'm looking for opportunities to talk to them about Jesus. And so Nicodemus comes at night. We as Christians sometimes get hung up on things that really don't matter. And we miss opportunities to share the gospel with people around us. Don't be like Nicodemus. Be like the Samaritan woman. Now this, in the first century, that statement, be like the Samaritan woman, is a radical departure from everything that people expected. They're like, be like what? And this woman is a train wreck. So if you look at John 4, she's a train wreck, but she's amazing. Nicodemus is going to be in heaven. He, he gets redeemed sort of later in the text. The Samaritan woman is going to be in heaven. I want to meet her. For, I, I don't know her name. It's not recorded. But she's amazing. So it was about the sixth hour. John 4, 6 Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour is high noon. It is the brightest, lightest part of the day. 
And so a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. This is mind-blowing because Jewish rabbis did not talk to Samaritan women, and they certainly didn't do it at a well because there is a theme in Scripture, a trope, if you will, of if you meet a woman at a well, there's a wedding. Oh, man. If you were hearing this for the first time in the first century, you'd be, you'd be shaking in your boots. What is happening? The woman gets it. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where did you get that living water? Now I want you to think about the Samaritan woman in the context of, or in contrast to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is like, duh, he doesn't get it. The Samaritan woman starts by asking really good questions. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Oh my goodness. John 4, 12. Jesus is talking to a woman at a well at high noon, and she's asking great questions. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, and so whoever drinks the water I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And this woman, she's a mess. We're going to find out in the context. The next thing Jesus says to her is, Hey, go, go call your husband and come here. And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, You've spoken truly because you've had five husbands and the guy you're living with now isn't your husband. Rut-row. And so here's this woman who is a mess. Morally, she's compromised. She's already a Samaritan. She's already a woman. Jesus isn't supposed to be talking to her. She's had five husbands, and the guy she's with now won't even marry her. She's a mess. But when you think about the questions that she asks, the theology that she expresses, the desire, the hunger to know who Jesus is, I want to be like that woman. And what John is doing, okay, so John had all these stories. And he said, which story am I going to tell? I'm going to tell the Nicodemus story about Nick coming at night, because Nick is supposed to get it, and he doesn't. And then I'm going to tell the story about the Samaritan woman that Jesus met at the well that day, because, yeah, she's a moral wreck. She's a disaster. But she's asking the right questions. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Jesus says, woman, the hour is coming. When neither on this mountain, she asks, where, where should we worship, is what she asks. The hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Verse 23 is where I'm landing, okay? But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And John wrote this at a time where you could not go to the temple in Jerusalem because it's been knocked down. There's not one brick standing on top of another. The only thing that's left of that temple is one of the retaining walls for the structure. It's gone. And when John wrote this, what he's saying is, how will you worship Jesus in spirit and in truth? You don't have to go to a location. You don't have to go to a temple. 
you should go to church. Don't don't hear me wrong there. And so in this context, I, how did I even get here? Okay, so we're talking about friendship, and we're talking about um, this the context of these relationships. And the main text that I talked about this past weekend is an instruction from Jesus in John 15. So the background to all this is that J John is asking the question, how are you going to worship God with no temple in spirit and in truth? And that's a challenge. That's a real challenge. And so if you meet somebody and you think, oh, this person needs Jesus, really, John is a great place to start because you can sit down and you can read it with them and you can explore these ideas together. In the context of the book of John, John starts off with the first couple chapters, um, the first 13 chapters, 12 or 13 chapters, is the book of signs, which kind of leads up to the cross, and then the book of glory that talks about the crucifixion, but also Jesus's instruction for the disciples. And so Jesus is going to give different instructions for the disciples. One of them is wash each other's feet. I love you, but wash your own feet. Oh, wait, you know what? I can't say that. Because if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, then washing people's feet is a responsibility that I should take on. I should do it gladly. Friendship. So when Jesus, uh, let me read to you John 15, just starting in verse 12, and we'll go to verse 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another." Now, this is interesting in a couple of different ways. There's an inclusio, so it starts with, it starts with, this is my commandment. It ends with, this is my commandment. So it's kind of a unit, kind of packed together. Um, love one another. And then he says, I call you friends. Now, in the ancient world, um, friendship was discussed. Uh, what kind of friend is Jesus saying that we are? This is from Craig Keener, who says this, When he calls them friends, it grabs the ancient reader's attention. The image of friends, not slaves, who obey Jesus' commandments is meant to jar the hearer to attention. Friendship does not mean freedom to disobey, but an intimate relationship that continues to recognize distinctions and authority. So what Keener is suggesting here is that just because Jesus says that, that they're friends, it doesn't mean that they can just be like, oh yeah, Jesus, my buddy, said it was okay, right? Because there's also this important and key idea that if you're going to be the friend of Jesus, you're going to have to listen and do what Jesus commands. You didn't go anywhere, but I just had lunch. <clears throat> Welcome back. So, one of the things that we see in the text here, Jesus calls them friends, and this is, this was mind-blowing, that the Son of God would call you his friends. People in the ancient world were accustomed to unequal friendships, unequal relationships. 
most people were either very poor or very rich. There was a very small middle class. There wasn't a whole lot of <clears throat> back and forth. Well, I'm sorry. Let me go back. There wasn't a whole lot of social mobility in the ancient world. If you were born poor, you died poor. If you were born rich, pretty good chance you died rich. <clears throat> very little social mobility. So people were accustomed to unequal relationships. But one of the big ideas that, that was very important is the idea of honor. Where you and I are more interested in the acquisition of money, in the ancient world, you were more interested in, in the acquisition of honor, that your family would have a good name, that your line would be recognized as a distinguished and honorable line. And so with that, uh, if you were very wealthy, you had uh, people expected things of you. So you were expected to uh, help people who were poor. And in return, uh, this is a reciprocal relationship. The person who you loaned money to or gave help to in some way would then honor you. Um, sometimes even by uh, like voting along with you in the in the city forums. You know, if something came up, you you're, you would honor your patron by going there and voting. Uh, it wasn't quite as crass as a one for one purchasing votes kind of a situation, but more in the sense of rendering honor back to those who had rendered some sort of honor to you. So um, in, this, in, in this idea, though, what Jesus is doing is he's elevating his disciples up to the level of a relational intimacy that they're kind of shocked by. And this is an intimate relationship that involves obedience to Jesus' commands. <clears throat> it's not the idea that Jesus is my Facebook friend and I can watch his posts from time to time. No, I don't follow Jesus on TikTok. I, I, that's not the kind of relationship we're talking about here. Um, Jesus is not only my LinkedIn friend who helps me with my career. Jesus is God. And so in this relationship where he calls the Christian his friend, when he calls the disciple his friend, he still expects their obedience. And that's not a foreign idea for them. But the kind of obedience that he expects and the example that he gives them and the examples that he has given them, he washed their feet. And then he says, look, if I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, how much more are you supposed to wash each other's feet? How much more are you supposed to take care of your Christian friends in that relationship? The text of John 15, 12 through 17 says, love each other as I have loved you. Now, <clears throat> we, we really mess this up because we like to think of, of it in our own terms. We like to think about our relationship with God as God's okay with me. You know, like I have my, an individual would have their own certain sins or, or things that they're kind of hung up on, but that's okay because forgiveness and God's okay with me. We get that backwards because really what we need to say is, is God really is God okay with me in the sense that am I being obedient to his revealed will in scripture and not just the parts that I like the parts that challenge me the parts that drive me the parts that keep me awake at night is God okay with me in that sense <clears throat> now in in one sense if you're not a if you're not a Christian you happen to be listening to this I, I just want you to know that the way that God loves you is through his son, Jesus. We call it the gospel. 
that God sent his son as a payment for the sin and broken relationship problem that everyone has. And that by trusting in him, you enter into a new restored relationship where God does call you his friend. If that's a weird idea for you, if you've never heard that, by all means, uh, unqualifiedscholar at gmail.com. Hit me up. A lot of times as Christians, what we do is we say, hey, you wash my feet. Because that's what the Bible says. The Bible says, you're supposed to wash my feet. Or even we make it kind of a second order kind of thing. The Bible says that you have to go do this for him. As if the person doing the asking isn't capable of doing it to help out. We like to we like to point the Bible at other people. We need to point the Bible at ourselves. Jesus was very pointed with people throughout the gospel. I mean, <clears throat> you can, as you read the gospel of John, there's a number of times where Jesus is very, mm, not very Jesus-y, not very much like the warm, fuzzy, passive Jesus we've come to expect. And so I think Jesus is really being very loving to people, and God is being very loving to people, but not in the sense of the way that we love our Instagram friends. We love our Instagram friends by smashing that like button. That's not the way that God wants us to love each other. We read John 3.16 and we love it. For whoever believes in the Son, I'm sorry, for, who, for God so loved the world that he gave his only, one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life or eternal life. We like that because it's warm and fuzzy. It's all about us. God loves us. But John 3.36, the same chapter right at the end says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. Our modern concept of love is too squishy. It's just, it's soft, it's weak, it doesn't always tell us the truth. Do you like my hair? Oh, I love your hair. Well, <clears throat> sometimes we need a haircut. Sometimes we need to be told. Our modern concept of love is too squishy. C.S. Lewis said this, love is not affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. Not an affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be con uh, obtained. What would you do for your friends? Do you have friends? <clears throat> I have a number of friends. And there are some friends who could call me and say, Hey, I'm, uh, I'm in town. My car broke down. Could I stay at your place? There's a number of friends where that's an easy call. Sure, yeah, you can stay with me. There are other people who are like, I'm sorry, I'm we're Facebook friends, man. I don't really like know you. You can park in my yard, I guess. What would you do for your friends? Friendship is this equality of reciprocal goodwill. Friends love each other. They're committed to one anothering. <clears throat> and this is an important idea that friends serve the Lord together. You see, that's where, like in the church and in relationships in Christianity, we often <clears throat> still want our way. Like, I want to do church, but I want to do church my way. I don't want to be involved in the church where we can't do things my way, right? I want a Burger King church and hold the judgment, you know, those kind of things. Let me do what's wrong. Love me anyway. I'll love you anyway. But I need to tell you when you're doing something that's wrong. 
So uh, the text talks about if you do what I command, that means that love and obedience go together. You go back to John uh, John 15, uh, verse 12 to 17, and, and really Jesus is saying, I want you to uh, love me. I want you to love each other. Uh, but also that love entails obedience. It entails, it entails being obedient to Jesus. If you do what I command, means that love and obedience go together. And then he says, go and bear fruit. And that fruit means expand the reach of the of the gospel make more christians now there's a couple ways to do this okay you can um, have children raise them in a christian home that's having more christians that's an aspect of discipleship but even more there are people that we we need to talk to about their religious beliefs oh i could never do that i could never talk to somebody about their religious beliefs because we're not allowed to do that in the world around us but we're commanded to in Scripture. And so are you going to be uncomfortable to be obedient? Are you going to be willing to be uncomfortable in order to be obedient to what God tells you to do? To love one another and go bear fruit. And you are the fruit of the disciples' labor. You see, they told, they told people about Jesus, who told people about Jesus, who told people about Jesus. And now it's kind of come, out, come down to you. <clears throat> and what John is doing in the context of John is he's asking the question, what will you do with Jesus? And so that's the continuing question for us all. We remember the great command in Scripture to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. We also remember the great commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That we're supposed to be a, a people characterized by meeting and advancing God's agenda in the world around us. Not in the sense that we're jerks about it. You know, somebody says, I'd rather not talk to you about Jesus. Okay, how can I pray for you? Don't pray for me. Okay. We don't have to be jerks about it. <clears throat> the better we do church, the better we do mission in the world. And I think we need to be willing to be uncomfortable in order to be obedient. Uh, about a year ago, I was um, the senior pastor at Pathway Community Church, leading that church through a merge process with Heart of the Lakes United Brethren Church, where I served for about nine months before becoming the senior pastor at Shoreline. Uh, the merge was really hard. Um, most of the time, when you bring a when a church joins another church, the senior pastor of the joining church gets let go immediately. That's usually the way things go. We didn't do it that way. Uh, we, we were maybe stupid about it. But what we did was we committed the senior pastor of the of Heart of the Lakes UB, my friend Kyle, uh, his associate Cody, uh, who's my good friend. We all agreed that at the end of this, we were going to be friends no matter what. And we had some moments. We had several moments. I'm not interested in ever being the junior partner in a merge ever again. I'd rather be the, the lead partner, right? I'm okay with merging. <clears throat> Just want to be the lead. That's okay because my friend Kyle wants to be the lead too. Probably my favorite time, uh, Kyle and I were attending a, um, it was an over 50s ministry group, which I qualified for and he doesn't. But there was giant Jenga there. Now, Kyle is very competitive. I don't think I'm quite as competitive as Kyle, but I'm still pretty competitive. And we played giant Jenga to a tie. And I want to tell you, people stopped what they were doing to watch us because we were 100% focused on winning giant Jenga. We were committed through the merge process to be in a good relationship no matter what. 
even if things went sideways, even if things, you know, people got upset, we, we had to weather a lot of different things through that year. And so I think that's, and we still, we still do. We, we do ministry stuff together. We look forward for opportunities to get together and spend time together. Uh, quite a bit less now that uh, I've moved on. Um, and I, I've said this a number of times, you know, <clears throat> um, through a lot of the hard choices that we faced as a church, um, we worked it out. We worked it out. We literally, we sat down and we worked it out as brothers in Christ. And we wanted to honor one another to the absolute best that we could because that's what honors our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that's what I think in this text, as we think about uh, John 15, 12 through 17, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And that means you have to set aside ego and pride and all kinds of things in order to do the will of God in the world today. We used a movie, we used Shrek to bring in the idea of friendship. And we talked about the ideas of friendship through the eyes of Shrek and Donkey, but really through the eyes of, of the Bible, through the eyes of Scripture. <clears throat> We're still human. We're still tragically human so many times and in so many different ways. But I would encourage you, if you're part of a church where you struggle to connect, go ahead, get out there a little bit. Take some risks. Those people are supposed to be the friends of Jesus and the friends of you. And so that's commit. <clears throat> commit to relational unity, even through hard times. So I'll say, I'll say this in closing up. You know, if there's a relationship that's not right, that you need to make right, go make it right. Make a phone call. Hey, Got to talk to you. Okay. Are you committed to mutual goodwill and service to God, or are you plagued with suspicion and ambition? Now, lots of things to think about as you think about this idea of friendship. Is God just somebody on your list of Facebook friends? Somebody that you know, but you're not really in a relationship with? Is God somebody who's just on your LinkedIn profile? Yep, follower of God, check Check that box and hope that he helps you get a job. God is more than that. And you are more than that to him. And we're supposed to be more than that to each other. Hey, thanks for stopping by. Thanks for coming by the Unqualified Scholar podcast. I believe I've gone a little bit long today, so hope you're good. Uh, I smashed the buttons. I don't know. See you around.